You're listening to Conversations with Shonda, a Minneapolis Foundation podcast that unpacks the community's grittiest, most vexing problems, hosted by Shonda Smith-Baker. All right. Welcome to Conversations with Shonda. I'm super thrilled to have you in this conversation with me for a couple of reasons, and one of which is that you were with me with the very first podcast that I ever did in that first season. So it feels like a bit of a full circle moment. But before we jump into that conversation, would you mind providing just an introduction? How do you introduce yourself? How do you want the the listeners to know you? And just say a little bit about you. Sounds good. Yes. My name is Uzama Obasi. Some people call me Uzi. You might hear people call me that every now and then. I am a creative entrepreneur. I have some different creative businesses. One's an event photography business where we document meetings and all sorts of fun, boring corporate things. And then I have a video production company where we help small businesses and nonprofits tell their story in a way that actually helps them reach their goals. Because sometimes when it comes to smaller businesses or nonprofits, what's missing is making sure that the goal is met. So we help more on the pre-production end to make sure that that gets all the way through. I also have a clothing line called Creative House, which is also my production company with my business partner, Amir Abdullah. And I am now actually getting more into the art space and creating uh, prints from the photography that I do. So that's a little bit about me. I do a lot of different things, but it's uh, it's all in the creative realm. Were you always creative? Uh, I think a little bit. I was always creative and entrepreneurial when I was in first or second grade, I started a business called Gloopy Glue, which I would Loopy take- Gloopy Glue? Gloopy Glue, yep. Okay. I would take people's glue and dye it whatever color they wanted using markers. And then Elmer's put me out of business because they started releasing colored glue. So that was that was the first lesson there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you should have got that patent. Should have got that patent. <laughs> Brand deal with them or something. Man, they should be teaching that in kindergarten. You would have been ready. <laughs> right. <laughs> What I mentioned in my introduction is that you were with me in the beginning when we launched the podcast, and it was quite comforting actually to have you there. And as you know, it was a bit of a a bit of a push to get me to do this. I don't know if you have anything about your observation of that period of of my uh, my career here, I guess. No, I thought it was good for you in that time period and seeing how comfortable you are now with the interviews you've done, you know, since then. It's, uh, it, I think it was good because it like helps you kind of, I don't know, I think when people are so, you know, into doing the work, they don't necessarily want to be the face of the work all the time. And you felt like you were being thrown to me in the face of it. But I thought, I think that's needed because we don't see enough people doing that in uh, the Twin Cities because it's just culturally frowned upon kind of. But, and then the people who do put themselves out there are doing it for the wrong reasons. So it's always good to see someone do it for the right reasons and then use their voice that they have and making sure more people can hear what they have to hear. Say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if, if people could have only been sort of the fly on the wall and you're like, do more, do this, like just the coaching from behind the scenes. So I appreciate that. Um, and then, you know, in parallel to that, because um, you were so sort of instrumental in, in that time, right? And it wasn't just the podcast, but the live conversations too, which were, you know, not easy topics. And when I, like, even now, when I look back, right, like my first podcast was with Van Jones. Like I didn't even go with someone I knew, right. I'm, I'm like with the professional commentator, right. Um, and then my first two live conversations were with Robin D'Angelo on white fragility. 
And then the second one was with Edgar on decolonizing wealth, right? So they're not, they're big topics I just jumped right in on, right? And I thought it, I thought they were weighty and, um, you know, thinking about how to manage both my personal experiences, the experience of people that I hold and an audience sometimes that are not um, always uh, clear on those experiences or uh, clear that sometimes they are uh, perpetrating uh, um, these experiences on, on folks of color. And so it was, it was really quite complicated. And I remember then thinking about some of the things that I've watched you cover and, and, and the even more complexity of it, particularly following um, George Floyd's murder. And so I would love to just talk to you about the evolution of your storytelling. Let's start with George. How did you end up cover? Like, what did you do? How did you end up with Ben Crump? Everything goes back to Alex Tittle. Most times when I link back any bigger event or major event in history that I've done, it always goes back to him. Um, so <laughs> I had gotten a text from a guy who Alex had recommended to me to do photography for him. I get a text from him in the middle of the night the day before Ben got to town saying, Ben Crump needs you tomorrow. I'm like, okay. That was literally the conversation. Then uh, I got connected with uh, Ben's people and from there started shooting with him. It was only supposed to be to cover a press conference. And Ben really liked the way I worked and how quickly I worked, how efficiently it was. And he's like, can you stay the rest of the day? And I was, can you come back tomorrow? Can you come back the next day? Hey, we have three more funerals for George. Can you go to North Carolina and then Houston with us? And then from Houston, we had to leave, we left the barrel right after the last uh, prayer before putting George into the tomb. And we had to go straight from there to get on a plane to go to DC for Philonis, uh, George's brother and Ben to testify in front of Congress. So I went with for that and then back to Houston and then home. Uh, so it was kind of like a whirlwind 10 days that started with a, hey, can you be available tomorrow? I think with, uh, some of the past you know work I've done where it has to be quick and it has to be accurate it has to be go be more you know documentative versus you know trying to force a moment that helped me be able to take something like this on and not have to worry not worry about am I getting this am I getting that like what about this what about that but you know I'm able to be more efficient with it so it just it fit uh just with the style I've been running my business as to be able to hop into uh, something like this in Ben Crump's world. The emotions in the city were so high and the emotions of many of us were high, right? Like we were completely disrupted. Like, I don't know where you personally were. I can only anticipate where I think you were. So so how were you able to sort of balance? Was it helpful to be there? Was it like what what was happening with you over this course of the 10 days? Like bring us into the story. Help like yeah. bring us into the story of these 10 days. Yeah. So I mean, let's say let's go before the 10 days. So after you know George's murder happened and uh police I remember seeing just uh the police report that I put out there and went, okay, moved on with my day. And then more stuff started coming out, more stuff started coming out. I actually never saw the video until the first day of court because I just wanted to, I didn't want to see the video. Um, but it was hard to avoid that first day. It's been described to me, it's been told to me, and and same thing happened to me when Philando uh, Castile was murdered. I, you know, kind of just needed to 
just not do anything. So for those next couple of days, I just wasn't really doing anything. So getting that text was helpful for me because you know I just had a son. So going to out to protests where people are getting tear gas and arrested and shot by pawn shop owners and all sorts of things, I was not looking to get into that mix just because it wasn't where I could help the best and where me as a photographer could be. There were a lot of photographers out there documenting um, what was happening out there, which is good. And then now for me to be able to document with Ben and the family was, was where I felt like I needed to be because being able to take those pictures for us to be able to share, whether it's on social media or wherever it is, but being able to help control the narrative from our end and be on offense is something that doesn't necessarily happen too often where we're able to be able to say like, this is, this is who this person was. This, this is who, you know, loved him. These are the people who cared about him. This is a real person. This is not uh, just some random person that no one cared about. So being able to show those pieces is really what came through with my work is showing that, you know, this was a human being versus a hashtag, a case, uh, uh, whatever, you know, an event, because people like to refer to George as just those things, whether, but, you know, he was a human. So being able to show that human side and that family side uh, was really what was important for um, my work, I think. Mm -hmm. Did you have an opinion about Ben Crump before you met him? I did not, actually. I had an opinion about Al before I met him. <laughs> uh oh, well, let's talk about Al Sharpton. Let's talk well, about you, Al. You know, it's funny, too, because, like, I, I, uh, oh, you always, like, think, uh, you know, like you sometimes wonder like where these opinions come from. So like as I was as I saw him walk in the room the first, I'm like, okay, whatever. And I'll start thinking about like, okay. I'm basing this off of no actual personal experience. So I'm like, let me start from just zero and not let my mind be, you know, just like poison, but poison from outside source sources that are not, you know, checked by me at all. So right. so opinions like what he always shows up. Like you know. right, the ambulance chasing sort of yeah. thing. Like here comes the circus. Like all this stuff that we hear about him. Yeah, right? and that's the thing. Okay. That's all the stuff we hear, and what we don't see is the fact that he is actually there for the families. He is the one that they're going to call. Like he doesn't do it for the general public. He does it for those families. So seeing that in person, and then hearing um, other people tell stories about how there was a key witness in their case that needed to actually show up to court, but the guy kept getting arrested for selling drugs. And Al went, flew into town and was like, how much are you getting paid? How much are you making selling drugs? And the guy's like, told him this is how much he's making because this is how much he needs. And then to, you know, be able to pay the bills and stay, you know, alive. And I was like, I'm going to pay you that. Just stop selling drugs. And so stories like that, you know, where he's taking money out of his own pocket to then make sure this person can be out of jail and be a credible witness for uh, this case that's happening here. And then for, you know, him be going in and paying funerals because he knows that he can help in those ways. And and people always say he does it for attention, but that's that's kind of the point. Because when there is no attention, then no one cares. Like even now people don't want, they don't want to talk about George anymore. They want to move on. They don't. They don't care anymore. What would have you believe that people don't care anymore? People want to move on. I, from the experiences I've had, and when the looks I've seen when it's the topic is brought up, and with some of the 
just some of the conversations I've had about uh, different projects that people first approached me about. Then now that now they just like no, we're, we're kind of we're not really thinking about this anymore. We're thinking about it this way. Mm-hmm. Speaking pretty vague, but because I don't want to be too specific um, with uh, with uh, the same scenario I'm speaking of. But like it's just yeah. So if I if I were to help put what I think you're saying into words because I may be witnessing some of this as well, where, you know, in the moment people want to understand both what happened on that day to being really moved in the movement of what was happening in the city, scared for the city, wanting to understand what is happening around policing and race and systemic racism and really going all in during that year following his murder to now people sort of saying, not saying, but not being as intentional about the work that still needs to be done around racial justice, understanding how it was the little racist acts of Derek Chauvin and people that lead to the big thing, right? You have to pay attention to the small thing. Is that sort of what you're saying? Yeah, that's uh, that's pretty much what I'm saying. Like, I mean, to sum it up, the, they they didn't keep the same energy. It's the, the energy's gone. <laughs> they didn't keep it. That was interesting too because I ran into him a couple times, and I actually saw him not that long ago. It's an interesting thing where you hear people a lot of times in the community do describe him as he just shows up for attention, and then and yet in the same breath, people are grateful for grateful may not be the right word, but that's the word I guess I just used, but. For, you know, cell phone cameras and an ability to document the injustices that are going on so that we can elevate an issue. So they're actually, in fact, doing both things. He's been elevating issues before we had camera phones, but he's sort of had some reputational damage and maybe he's not always had the best approaches or maybe we haven't agreed with them. But they've been effective for the families, for the most part, that he's helped. Um, And so Ben Crump is sort of in that same Brain where people are like, you know, I don't like, he hasn't won any cases anyway, or he just shows up and he just pops up where there's issue. And that's not necessarily been my point of view. Um, it feels like to me, there's a network of unfortunate families that have had to suffer publicly through um, these police involved uh, homicides. And they have a network and they, they sort of share the resources that they have found the most helpful. And he is one of them. And so as you got to know Ben Crump, what did you learn? I learned that he's real. Like that's that's exactly he is doing what he's supposed to be doing. And he really doesn't it sounds terrible. He doesn't have to be. Like he has this is a, it's a very small amount of his cases are these police brutality cases or when someone's murdered by the police. That's a very small amount, but but they're the loudest ones. They're the ones that people are going to be, the media is going to be covering. They're not covering when he's uh, suing XYZ company for uh, XYZ reason and, you know, these other, these huge companies for these other reasons where those are what's really, that's what's really even funding these cases because they'll go and go and go. And if there's no settlement, then Ben doesn't get paid. Mm-hmm. He's done a lot around predatory banking. Uh, there's yeah, he's done some. I haven't been with him too many on those, but there's. I know he's uh had some cases around predatory banking, and uh, they've probably sued probably every major bank in this country because they're all doing it. 
Mm-hmm. And they'll keep doing it until they could they figure out how to make sure from the bottom to the top all the those uh policies and that they put in place are taken out. Mm-hmm. The documentary, what is it called? Is it called Ben? Is it it's called Crump on Netflix that just came out? It's called Civil. Oh, it's called Civil. So I watched it. I think it did sort of expand my perspective of him and sort of, I guess, my appreciation of the network of folks around him that have worked very hard to elevate the issue, not just get the family resources following the death of their loved one, because nobody wants that, right? Like, but to elevate the issue. So just to go back sort of where I started with is that you spent these 10 days with Ben and that team and George Floyd's family how how has that impacted you? Um, just helped me, you know, expand just my my thinking as far as like what what needs to be done to get some change. And before, I think a lot of people think whatever they're doing is a thing that needs to be be um, done. So whether it's someone that's an activist that's protesting, organizing, and getting and disrupting. They think that's what needs to be done. That's it. And then there's people who are, you know, organizing corporations to, you know, bring funding back in the communities. There's people who are leading nonprofits that are uh, helping in their way. And I think it's so easy for everyone to think that, like, that's all they should be doing is all we should be doing is just that their way. But it's really is a whole collective. We need everything. So it kind of helped me see that more clearly that we need everyone doing their part. You know, we don't just have an army, we don't just have the Marines, we don't just have an Air Force, we have everything that needs to work together to then win. Were you in the courtroom? I know for sure you were in a room, maybe a hotel room or something, when the guilty verdict came down for Derek Chauvin. I was with the rest of the family. We had an overflow room in a hotel down the street. I was on the courtroom. What was that moment like? It was it was um, some a sense of relief. Uh, after the first one came in, everyone, you know, got excited, but then we're like, wait, 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 there's still two more counts. There's always a sense of hopeless optimism uh, the whole the whole time from, you know, when we knew the verdict call came in to when uh, the actual verdict was read. Uh, so we, you know, felt that release. We felt that uh, happiness then once all three counts came in. But shortly after, I was like, well, we got to do this all over again because the next day we had to, we buried Dante Wright. So in the middle of all of this, then Dante is is killed. And now you're you're with his family. Were the families also together? Well, there were some times when we were together and uh you know they had we did a joint press conference, I believe uh two days after he was murdered. Um the night he was murdered, I was picking Ben up from the airport at midnight um and just telling him what was happening. And then by the next day, he was brought onto the case. And then the morning after that, I was doing Good Morning America and making sure that the families had a chance to speak because that's the thing. People, I think, don't understand necessarily how important it is to get in front of the press. Using the press to be able to make sure that we can have a narrative out there that speaks to who this human really was versus letting it just run wild and what's just 
tends to happen. It's just this person was this, this person was that, this person, whatever it was. But like, it doesn't necessarily matter all those things because none of the things that people are talking about that uh, will, you know, demean the character of that person is supposed to be a death sentence. Yeah, you know, this this capturing these moments have taken on a greater importance. And so can you talk about the importance of capturing the historical moments? And why is that important, especially when people can distort the truth or put things out that are are not truthful? Because I think that's what you're going to write. They're distorting it. They're tr- they're assassinating character in a way to excuse the fact that they were killed in some cases. So can you talk about the importance of capturing these historic moments? So I'm, I'm not even 100% sure if it would be necessarily distorting the truth, but just deciding what truths to magnify is what both sides really do. We're making sure that you're actually caring about the person as a human. And so with the document documenting I do, it really does show that because... We, I mean, we don't get to see the what the civil process looks like. We see sometimes we'll see what the state, the public, you know, the state prosecution. We don't see what the federal prosecution looks like, but we don't see what that civil process look like, looks like. And behind those closed doors, we need as much evidence as possible. Like, hey, this is the person that you took. They took from their family. This mm-hmm. is a real human that had people that really cared about them. And here's those people caring about them. But then also, I mean, that so that helps there, but it also helps as far as when we're putting it out in the media that like, okay, this is, this it just, it just really comes back to bringing more of the human aspect of that person because it's so easy for people to just look at a, their phones, look at their TVs and think this was just a character on, on TV versus an actual human. It, it's interesting in, in your responses because you're very sort of like, almost like matter of fact, right? Like I'm imagining like if I was there, I, you know, I, I would be capturing in, I think my conversation, the emotion of the moment. Have you, do you think you've been able to process the emotion of what you have witnessed over the last couple of, of years and document it? I'd say I've done a good amount of processing of it. At Amir Locke's funeral was the first funeral where I didn't cry. So that's mm-hmm. when I decided to take a break. So during Jordan's funeral, you know, we had three of them. And so by that time, it was like, I've gotten really close to the family. So then seeing his older brother, or his younger brother, Philonis, break down, that's what made me break down. Um, and then at uh, there was another funeral um in LA for the girl who was shot while she was trying on dresses um because the police were just going after somebody and they were not necessarily thinking about everyone else around the paparazzi actually they're media but it's LA so I called them paparazzi because they acted like paparazzi they swarmed the uh casket and the uh parents as they're crying to get their shot so that made me super emotional so there's been like always something that kind of like puts me over a little bit but when nothing really happened with during a mirror blocks funeral, that was when I was like, okay, let me take a time out real quick and um, just really uh, think about everything. So um, I'm I'm good. I'm, I've been you know I've had time to process. I've had time to think because when I think about it more about like neutrally like what's next, not necessarily emotionally like positive or negative, that's helped me make sure that I can keep on doing this kind of work. You started out and like on your website, I think you're like, no matter the question, creativity is the answer. I think that's what it says on, on your website. You started out as, you know, here are the list of things I do, but at the end of the day, sort of the summary is I'm a creative, right? Often when we think about how we make a difference, 
um, or what's happening. You know, I sit in a lot of spaces where people have a lot of opinion about what someone else should do. And often the conversation is, what can you do in the realm of your talent, of your leadership, of your realm of influence? Because if we all leaned into that more boldly in addressing these issues, we would probably get a lot further more quickly. For those of us and those that are listening that are in the creative space, what advice might you give if they're interested in getting more engaged in issues in community? It doesn't even have to be on this particular issue around policing and, and community and, 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 and documenting things like you have, but what advice might you give? I would say just start doing something that you can have control over yourself, where you're not going to let any kind of outside sources or forces really stop you from getting any kind of start. Because if you have, like, if you have an idea of, like, at the, you know, end of, like, the grandmaster plan is to do a portrait series of 10 civil rights leaders across the country where you have zero dollars, zero connections, zero anything. You're going to let that stop you from actually making any kind of progress. So I would say start with something that you can control, like you're in the software world is called MVP or minimum viable product. I think that's what's called. Yeah. So um, start with that and like just make something. It might be, even be a self-portrait series or a street photography series that where you're getting more into your writing where you're, the captions matter and you're putting on social media or you're writing articles on Medium, but you can start somewhere to then that where you have 100% control to be able to then you know, build the momentum up to where you can now either start asking or have more credibility to, to get the connections or have money to fly places to go and take these portraits and actually achieve the final vision. But um, I think right now we live in a world where the final product of whatever we're trying to do is so seems so attainable that we forget some of the foundation building parts. And that can be in anything. I mean, like selling these hats, like if people don't care about me, they're not buying these hats or if they don't care or I'll build a brand around people caring about, you know, the hat, people aren't going to buy the hat. Like people, if they don't care, they're not going to buy. So, you know, if you don't have that foundation, you're not going to be able to really create that grand master plan at some point. And then maybe the, the next question is around the small businesses are not for profits. And you, you were saying that you've helped uh, nonprofits. You do help nonprofits and small businesses tell their story better. And there's just an element and a, a through line of what are you noticing around those needs or what do you think is missing from the storytelling in the in the social sector? The biggest problem that I see is there's no clear goal for the video. Um, so let's say you have a, a nonprofit has an annual fundraising event coming up and the goal there is to raise funds during that fund and need section. So it should then be to you then you would make a video that you know actually goes right towards that goal and right towards those people who are going to be sitting in that audience right then and there but that can be the start and then what happens during all the <laughs> the planning phase is to like well we normally don't have a video so let's try to do this let's try to do that let's try to do this like hey people we want people to work here too so let's make sure we include some recruitment stuff and then now at the end when you have uh, no real clear goal and no real audience for that. You just make something that looks good, sounds good, 
and doesn't actually perform, which happens all the time because when you hire a videographer, they just want it to look good and sound good. That's what that's where they are, you know, rating themselves at. But uh, organization has different goals, so the goal needs to make sure be clear and be, you know, reverse engineered throughout the whole production process to make sure it actually works towards that. So wow. that's been the biggest thing is just not having a clear, uh, definite goal and uh, trying to mix too much in there. I've been to a lot of fundraisers. I've seen a lot of videos and speakers. They always bring up the need, right? Like they bring up someone from community or they tell these very, very sad stories, right? Like those stories do exist, but do you think we're amplifying enough the aspirations of community and the brilliance that exists in it? And is that just not investable? In my opinion, I think the amount of money most of these organizations spend on their annual uh, fundraiser can be better spent creating content throughout the whole year and building a more sustainable <laughs> outreach strategy as far as uh, making sure people understand who they are from a, an organization and making people care more. So now you have so this one night to make people care for the who are usually there because their company bought a table, so they don't even know who you are or care, but now they're being asked to give money. And if your program didn't do a good job of actually making them care, you're not gonna really get much. So then the amount that you raise is really what you already went in there with, uh, plus whatever, a couple of thousand, a couple hundred, depending on the organization, uh, for you got from the crowd, because again, they don't actually care. And let's say you max that whole you know, event at 300 people, and you're a target, you're a best buy, and you threw $10,000 sponsorship, whatever, I would rather throw that, I would see more value throwing that $10,000 and getting that logo recognition with this good organization in content that's put out on a more consistent basis. Because now you're going to be able to reach thousands of people. And especially if the outreach is done right, as far as, sorry, the delivery is done right, as far, as far as running ads to make sure it gets seen by those who need to see it. See it. So I think uh, just even from a whole like, you know, annual, I mean, I think they're the ones, they're the ones that raise those millions, those high six figures, those maybe low six figures amount every single year. And I think they're going to raise that regardless of what they do. Um, but I think uh, some small organizations need to rethink uh, where they're putting those funds and how they can get more out of it, um, you know, going forward. Very interesting. And so I appreciate that. But, you know, and part of my question, too, was about the depiction of community in those videos. Do you think that that is evolving? I think it can. <laughs> uh, this is a tough one, but I think I'm going to say it anyway. Yeah, I don't think it's going to evolve because people are using that as the reason why they need funds. And I think if you're an organization that's been doing that for 20 years and you're using the same kind of things, why do you really even exist anymore? If you have made, haven't even, you know, you have you haven't solved, you haven't made any progress towards your mission. Your mission should be something that you try to accomplish instead of something that you just treat. Um, so I think that's something that happens a lot in the nonprofit world is where people will show that they're treating the problem but in a way to then raise the funds to continue to treat the problem because it ties, it hits that emotional um, note 
that will get them to take action. So when we think about people trying to use uh, visuals to get people to take action, uh, there's uh, access like going up and down, that's like arousal, so high arousal, low arousal, and then pleasure, displeasure. Uh, and the top two axes is where you get the most uh, most uh, action happening. So whether it's high arousal, high displeasure, that's when people are gonna start doing things in a, uh, well, against you, but there's also a high pleasure, high arousal. Um, so some people wanna feel good because they are helping fix that bad thing. So showing the community at its worst is gonna hit that point that's gonna get those people to raise funds. Um, so those are the people who donate from that, uh, those kind of videos. And I think it's probably going to be the trend for years as far as people, instead of people showing more of the hope of what can be done. So I think if you're doing, again, content on a consistent basis versus a just one time and trying to you know get as many people in that room emotional, I think you're going to have more opportunities to show like the real progress that's being made versus just showing all the bad. And how has your perception of how art influences what's happening in community changed over the past couple of years? I think so. I think uh, just like wine, maybe five, 10 years ago, kind of got more, less, uh, it's become more mainstream, uh, being able to enjoy wine. And uh, same thing I feel like is happening with art, where people are not letting it be something that's just just for those people. I think more people are, are enjoying art in all aspects in a in a deeper way. And I think it will it allows people to then have opportunities to open their mind to just different aspects. And um so one thing I'm doing with Lululemon next month is I have a gallery that I'm doing with when in partnership with them at the Mall of America where it's about solitude and finding peace. So it's going to be, you know, some of my journey even of finding peace. And we kind of touched on that a little bit earlier today. Um, but it's also going to be, you know, me going and, and interviewing and doing, um, you know, street uh, photography and getting more people trying to talk about solitude. But like even just that aspect of a corporation who people care about because of their all for whatever reasons, and might even just because. They feel like that's what they're supposed to be wearing because that's what everyone's wearing. Now, because they already care about them that way, now there's an opportunity for me to come in with my art to then help people be more at peace. So seeing more stuff like that, I think would be, is, is good. It gives a, a gateway to uh, more um, engagement. Yeah, I see that Val, Valerie is now an ambassador for them as well. She does a lot of fitness stuff. Mm -hmm. So it like, I mean, the fact that you both are familiar does change my opinion or my connection even to that particular corporation. You're, you're sort of touching on how you're continuing to do your work. Do you do you plan on continuing to document issues to advance social justice? Like, do you will you stay with either crump or do you plan on continuing to kind of go into those moments and document them when they show up so yeah i'll definitely continue to work with ben uh whenever he needs me and i can i really kind of just call him at any time like what do you got going on and then like oh yeah come to this or i'll have you come to this or i'll fly up for this or or there's nothing going on as far as like where he feels like we we need more then you know i'll be 
here and doing working on other projects and I've had some ideas for projects and bigger productions that I haven't quite been able to get off the ground yet just because I need people to be ready to think about just everything in a different way I've had a short that I was trying to produce with not short a series I was trying to produce with uh Brandon Williams who is uh the nephew of George Floyd and it's gonna be called I hate it here uh and it was just going to give leaders across the region an opportunity to talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly, and why, and, and also, but also look at what the future holds. So community leaders, uh, people in sports, people in corporations, uh, people in nonprofits, so just different episodes. So you think like the shop meets uh, David Ledman's, my next guest is, but like more like the shop before uh, trying to uh, talk, have more community conversations. Uh, so I was talking with a couple of different organizations about getting it going and nothing happened after everyone was super excited about doing it. Uh, so I kind of just put a pause on those things because I still need to make sure that my other businesses are running well, but it, because it takes a lot to put all the planning and everything mm -hmm. into it and then spread to not to go anywhere is uh, kind of rough. But uh, I, I do want to get, I'm working on getting to a point where I can uh, start you know, producing more projects like that, uh, producing uh, more galleries, like what I'm doing with Lululemon and just finding different opportunities to do things in a bigger way. So when it comes to civil, uh, like just more civil rights, civil injustices, I wanna be able to work on how do I find, how do I take these ideas that I have and then find who's gonna pay for them? Because right. it's gonna be different now than some, a company or organization like, all right, we're gonna hire you to do this. Now it's like, I have this idea, and I need you to pay for it. <laughs> so I'm, oh, yeah. I'm I see. Mm -hmm. yeah, I'm trying to figure out what that looks like now. Cause I mean, even as any creative goes, like you first start creating for yourself and then you're like, I want to make this a living. So then you have to find a patron and that's either yeah. individuals or a corporation. So I want the corporation route or, you know, nonprofit route, just, you know, the, the corporate route, so to speak. And they have the money that I need. They have ideas and they have an audience that they're trying to reach. And I have my talent and my equipment and know-how. And mm -hmm. we trade those things. Mm -hmm. um, so now I partially what I'm doing is working on building more of an audience. So that now I have an audience and I still have my talent, I still have my know-how, and I have my ideas. And now at this point, all I need is money because someone wants to be a part of what it is I'm doing. So slowly but surely, you know, the built the Lululemon um gallery is you know a big step in the the hope for that process being something that could work because I mean, it's a giant company based out of Canada. So if I can get them to do that, I think I can expand my horizons to even do more than just even what's here locally and go to other. I, honestly, I think my biggest successes in this realm of me going on this next level of my create, creativeness is going to be happening out of state. Talk to me about, you know, two, three influential people that you have in your life and how they've impacted you. Uh, so one is Alex Tittle. Uh, he is never, he's never, you know, been someone that has tried to keep any secrets from anyone. He's always helping people try to get to the next level, whatever that level may be uh, for them. And whether or not they even reciprocate it, he's always, you know, helping. Uh, that's one thing I admire about him is the fact that he's just uh, the ultimate uh, connector and this like 
what's that word promoter was the you know like amplifier he amplifies your work yeah, amplifies exactly your work. yeah yeah um so that's one person uh ben crump is another person he, you know he's being able to see how he works and how um he's able to make impact on a you know nationwide level has been you know really important to see as far as um being able to uh just envision what like like let I me mean, just it's, it's expanded my worldview of what's possible in uh this this life we live in and Her, alex go ahead sorry. alex Tittle, because you've mentioned alex a couple of times and i know i met alex and i know him but i know the audience may not know him um so i you know he was very much involved in the city he's done work with the super bowl um, he he's a leader here. He's he's been out east. But how would you who who's Alex? This is for people that want to know. Like who is this Alex? He keeps bringing up. Yeah. So uh, Alex, I mean, he's a uh, right now. I believe he runs diversity, equity, inclusion for Medica, and like across the whole everything. Uh, so which is great. Then uh, that's you know been his realm as far as. Um, uh, that goes and there's a lot of people who go into diverse equity inclusion just for the speaking fees and for the uh the uh titles and the uh the paychecks um but he is someone that will actually put him his his job on the line mm -hmm. for making sure that the whoever has hired him is actually following up on those promises that they have made publicly, privately, wherever, uh, making sure they're actually making diversity and inclusion in like their their actual yeah. day, day way of life. And he's worked a lot in supplier diversity. And so then Ben, so you get to see how he shows up for people. So that's been impactful. Is there, so you got Alex and Ben and people that have created a lot of influence for you. Would you also have Alex as um, the person who has been your most important professional mentor, or do you have someone else in that in, the, in that category, perhaps? Alex for a while was my like, formal mentor when it came professionally, um, especially back when the days when the Super Bowl, leading up to when the Super Bowl was coming to town and then after, directly after. Um, we don't necessarily speak too much anymore as far as on the professional standpoint. Um, and one thing I've, I haven't really had a formal mentor in the past three years, but I've had, I've been able, I've, what I've done is I've taken more mini mentorships and actually being intentional about setting time with people and, and asking questions and getting answers and uh, seeking feedback. Mm -hmm. Do you see yourself as a mentor? Do you mentor people? If I mentor anybody, it's not a formal setting and they might just be watching me and trying to learn from me that way. Uh, yeah. So I don't have any formal mentors right now. I think because I'm still working on, like, don't get me wrong, I'm grateful for everything I have and where and where I'm at and how with business I'm able to actually make it on my own and I have to have a job and side to hustle my creativity. But I know that I have way further to go. So I don't, I sometimes I don't see myself as someone that should be mentoring anyone just because I haven't made it to where I think I need to make it. But I guess as far as helping people get to where I am now, because that's, again, would be great for a lot of people to be that that can be the end for them. But for me, I have so much further I need to go that I that haven't really thought about myself as someone that could be a mentor. I think that's kind of an interesting perspective. And, you know, when I think about even, you know, the the couple of years where I sort of knew you were documenting what was happening 
around Ben Crump and the Floyd family and all of that, right? Like I could see the pictures. I could see some of the footage you were putting out. You know, I mean, that's a really, really important work. And I I, I guess I'm going to go back there because you just prompted this for me. Where is that material? What are you going to do with it? Right now I'm working on potentially doing a gallery with uh, Filonis, who's a uh... George's brother, we're there to plan a celebration right now for George's birthday on October 15th. Uh, so I might be doing a gallery for that. Um, but as far as the aspirations of where everything's going to go, I don't know yet. But the aspiration is that you would like the, for that, that material and those those photos to be public. Like you don't want to yeah. keep it yourself and... The family doesn't own the material. You own the material and you would like to be able to do something with it. Is that, is that it? Yeah, that, I mean, that, that, that's, uh, that was a thought, yeah. And then one last question. What is one of the most important lessons you've learned in your time on this earth? I'd say the most important lesson I've learned is that it's really important how you talk to yourself and what you tell yourself um, is possible. Um, because if you, yeah, I'll sleep with that. Yeah. It's, it's important how you talk to yourself and what, how, how you believe in yourself. Good. How's the kids? Kids are good. The seven month old is crawling forward now, which is always nice. Versus <laughs> and getting mad when she gets stuck. Uh, and was she crawling backwards before? Or crawling what? backwards. Yeah. Just go <laughs> backwards, end up under her walker, end up under, you know, tables and just get mad when she's under there and doesn't know how to get out, but she's moving forward now, which is great because she gets to terrorize her brother, which she loves and he hates. <laughs> but, yeah, we're doing great. If you enjoy this show and want to learn more about what we do here at the Minneapolis Foundation, please visit us online at minneapolisfoundation.org. And of course, if you want to follow Shonda or the Minneapolis Foundation on Twitter or Instagram, that's Shonda S. Baker or MPLS Foundation. This is Sue Pak Thanks for listening.